This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, we have Nick Hutt's interview with Nancy Johnson, CEO of El Rio Community Health Center in Tucson, about her organization's processes for addressing the social determinants of health among its patient population. Then we'll have my interview with public speaker Marcus Gentry about effective leadership of teams. Finally, in our Fast Five segment, we'll talk about pricing strategy objectives. But first, Rich Daly goes beyond the news with a special guest. This is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. And this is Todd Nelson, Director of Partner Relationships and Chief Partnership Executive for HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. According to news reports, the Trump administration is encouraging consumers on the ACA individual market to seek help from private brokers. These brokers are permitted to sell short-term plans that critics have derided as junk plans because they may not protect people with pre-existing conditions or cover costly services such as hospital care. So Todd, can you tell us a little bit about how this development could impact the finances of hospitals? Sure, you know, um, hospitals have, you know, traditionally spent a lot of time helping their patients understand the insurance coverage that they have or lack of insurance coverage in some cases. So one of the ways that this could impact the finances is patients may come believing they have coverage for certain types of care, and yet they end up with large out-of-pocket expenses. So if that is the case and they, they don't really understand their coverage, then that could certainly lead to uh, less than favorable financial situations and finances for hospitals. So again, we have a a situation now, uh, a financial challenge that hospitals didn't create, but could nonetheless have to deal with the consequences from this situation. So what practical steps can hospitals take to prepare to protect not only their own finances, but the finances of their patients as well? Sure. So, you know, some of the things that, that HMA has been talking to our members about for, you know, some period of time is is thinking about having these conversations about um, out-of-pocket, you know, financial responsibility, what we call patient financial communications upon arrival or prior to arrival for service. And a lot of that information can be found on hfma.org under our industry initiatives and healthcare dollars and cents tab you know, where it really describes some principles for communication, engaging the patient early um, in the conversation, and assisting them in understanding not only the cost for services, but what their out-of-pocket payment would be. And what we have found through working with patients and patient advocacy groups is they really appreciate that approach from a hospital or health system or physician's office 
engaging them in that discussion so that not only are we taking care of them you know, clinically, but we're also helping to take care of them financially. So I'm going to catch you off guard here, but just a, a quick, can you give us an example? Is there anything you would you would highlight from those uh, different sort of uh, guidance that HFMA offers that a situation, what have you, that where they could provide help that a patient may may need, but may not even know they need? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the reality is if you find and determine that there's a gap in coverage, you know, every hospital health system has some kind of financial assistance policy, um, what used to be called a charity care policy, but but the new terminology is financial assistance policy. And when you identify that gap in coverage, then you can assist that patient to look at how they might be able to apply for that, how they could qualify for that. And it really becomes a you know financial discussion around assisting the patient to not only get the clinical care they need, but the financial care that they need as well. Yeah. And obviously the financial situation is, is a big deal to the public uh, and to patients now um, at this point. So it's, it is important to address that um, along with taking care of them physically and their physical health. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think the, the discussion around financial health um, of the patient, you can have a wonderful clinical outcome, but if that uh, discussion around the financial part of it doesn't occur or occurs later in the process, it can lead to patient dissatisfaction, you know, lack of retention uh, of patients, and, and in some cases, patients just not getting the care they needed because, you know, they're not sure about affordability and, and those types of things. You know, the, the reality is the short-term health plans, although that's uh, a newer offering, you know, hospitals, health systems, physician offices have, have been dealing with limited coverage for decades. And so, although this is kind of a new twist in that, many of the patient financial communications and just good financial uh, discussion um, things with patients that we've been doing forever really still apply. So, you know, does it add some financial pressure? Absolutely. But just as high deductible health plans added pressure, lack of coverage, you know, prior to, to certain newer plans, added pressure. This is just, you know, one more of those things that hospitals are going to have to deal with. Well, um, thanks a lot for, you know, those timely insights on a very complex subject, Todd. You're welcome. I appreciate being on the uh, podcast today. And keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our daily news site at hfma.org forward slash news. Is your organization a high performer in revenue cycle? Earn the recognition you deserve with a MAP Award from HFMA. My name's Christy Pahanage. I'm the Associate Vice President of Revenue Management Operations at Geisinger. We pride ourselves on the MAP Award. Having received it 12 times, Geisinger takes a lot of pride in our results. Our team is very dedicated to the metrics, looking at what's getting measured and making sure that we're able to deliver results for the organization. Find out more about HFMA's MAP Award by visiting hfma.org slash MAP Award. This is Nick Hutt with HFMA. I'm speaking with Nancy Johnson, who's the CEO of El Rio Community Health Center in Tucson, Arizona. 
Nancy was part of a provider panel at our 2019 Thought Leadership Retreat in October, where she and her fellow panelists explored ways that providers can tackle the social determinants of health. Nancy, tell us a little bit about the importance of addressing social determinants of health for your patient population in terms of why it's a strategic emphasis. Our health centers uh, here in Tucson, Arizona, take care of about 110,000 unique individuals. By basis of being a federally qualified health center, we take care of some of the most vulnerable and fragile people in our community, as well as entire communities. And for many, many years, and in fact, our entire clinical practice, we've always known the importance and the power that social determinants of health have on a person's health status. You know, access to healthy food, regular housing, employment, education, victims of abuse, substance disorders, all of those things impact how healthy a person will be. And so informally, over many years, we've been collecting data about our patient population and their needs for social determinants of health being addressed. And then uh, probably about two years ago, we kind of formalized that by using a national tool called PREPARE, P-R-A-P-A-R-E, that our patients complete electronically upon arrival at our various health center locations. And they're able to check off areas that are of concern. Maybe it's food insecurity, maybe it's transportation, maybe it's fear of losing their housing or they aren't employed. And all that information that's collected from the patient goes into the patient encounter. So as a physician or a provider, I'm able to see what the patient has checked off as far as being in need. Tell us a little bit about the advantages of being able to use a tool like Prepare to implement initiatives to manage the social determinants of health. When you don't have to ask these questions verbally, how you get much more robust factual answers from people about, you know, difficult questions to ask, sensitive questions to ask. So we've continued to collect that data so we can look at it um, from an aggregate population for our patients, but we can also start generating referrals with organizations in the community to help address those social determinants of health. How do you implement protocols to address social determinants in your clinical operational systems? This data we're collecting interfaces with our electronic health record so that anybody who opens that patient's chart can see that information when they come in for a visit, and uh, we can put referrals into the system. So we also use um, a cloud-based software tool that allows us to send referrals out to community organizations. So um, if I have someone who needs a diabetic food box, we can put in a referral to the community food bank. We can see electronically when they pick that referral up We can see their documentation that, yes, I I got out to your patient, we delivered the food box, here's other information. That information flows right back into our electronic health record. So, you know, really using that electronic health record as the source for that data and what needs are being addressed, what referrals are being closed around social determinants of health, and how we can, um, you know, keep that patient and or their family at their optimal state of health. You talked during your panel session at Thought Leadership Retreat about how you're able to use a tool to gain insights into potential partners to help you address social determinants. As we collect more data in sending referrals to 
the many community resources that we have available to help us with our patients. We're also finding the data we're collecting allows us to see which are the most powerful organizations in terms of reliability, bench strength, that have the resources to be able to accommodate the needs of our patients in a timely fashion. So, you know, headed down that path and beginning to talk to community organizations in a value-based environment, how much of my value-based reimbursement would I be willing to allocate to a strong community partner who maybe, I don't know, 85% of the time is able to find the individual at risk, assure that they have a ride for specialty care or that they get some job training or that they are in secure housing, safe housing. How much of my healthcare dollar that I'm earning as a value-based primary care provider would I be willing to allocate to a strong partner like that? Because I think as healthcare providers, you know, we, we can't be all things to all people. As a community health center, we're, we're focused on population health, but we don't want to be in the housing business. We don't want to be in the, uh, you know, community food bank business. We don't want to run transportation for 100,000 people. So who do we partner with in the community? This data collection is helping us figure out who those partners are. Are you able to get insights regarding your patient population on a macro level in the context of social determinants of health? Yes. You know, for example, we're now being, uh, we're now able to look at the patients who've completed that tool and uh, do some, you know, correlations, like how many of our patients who are over age 65 are struggling with affordable housing and transportation, or how many of our pregnant women are in a situation where they don't feel they're in safe housing or have an abusive relationship. So I think that that is how, you know, the data is helping to inform us around needed services and what our populations look like to give us some quality metrics to see if we can, you know, start to change those metrics. For example, if you come in and you identify some gaps in the social determinants of health tool, that tool will reset to query you at every visit. If I were to come in for a visit and I complete the the prepare social determinant health tool and I have no deficits, it's going to automatically just reset for for the next year. But if I've identified someone with gaps or concerns, we have the opportunity to uh, review that at every office visit or upon outreach or possibly if they call in for a telephone triage with the nurse. And then we have the ability to monitor and see if we're creating change over time. Finally, the billion-dollar question as far as the industry is concerned, how do you pay for these types of initiatives? The question that came up on our panel in our panel conference from the participants was, who's paying for this work around right. social determinants of health? And, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, value-based contracts and whoever the holder is of the opportunity to have upside uh, gain on earnings might share some of that value-based reimbursement with community partners. But the other work that's going on from United Healthcare is um, working on building a social valuation model around social determinants of health. So currently here in the state of Arizona, a United Community Plan, which is the Medicaid line of business, is looking at all the claims 
looking at our our patients uh, that are under the United Medicaid plan here, looking at their data from the prepare tool and starting to correlate and link that to cost of care. So they are in the process of introducing additional codes to bill for social determinants of health that have an underlying social valuation model in terms of payment. So futuristically, I think people are realizing that, you know, what happens in the exam room with a patient may not be what is creating health for that individual. And the importance of taking the healthcare dollar and spreading it across, uh, you know, really social terms of health, public health factors to uh, save dollars and hopefully improve health outcomes. Nancy, thank you for joining us. For much more about the 2019 Thought Leadership Retreat, keep an eye on hfma.org. Unlock practical industry resources by joining HFMA. An HFMA membership includes free access to more than 60 live webinars, also available on demand. Plus, gain access to expert regulatory analyses, industry news, live and online learning programs, professional certifications, and more. Explore the value of HFMA membership at hfma.org benefits. On this podcast, we interview people from all over the industry about all kinds of topics, but one common thread is assembling the right team and managing it effectively. So for today's episode, I called in an expert on team management. Marcus Gentry is the founder of the Respect Academy and a public speaker who provides common sense tools for productivity and development. He's also a wonderful entertainer, and if you ever have the chance to hear him sing, you should take it. One thing that comes up a lot in healthcare is with all the merger and acquisition activity that is happening, you have Mm -hmm. hospitals with their own system, their own process, their own people coming together and the new health system is trying to create uh, a unified process or department or what have you. What is the most effective way to make that happen once you've kind of determined what your new process is going to be and what you want your new um, department or team or what have you to look like, what's the best way to go about motivating the team to work together and to embrace the new way of doing things? Erica, that's a great question. I would say that the most important thing, first of all, is to establish clarity with some concise communication where there's clear communication with everybody who's involved from upper management to the frontline staff that's going to be working directly with the clients or patients or guests, whoever they um, have coming in communication. And, and there's, there's a guy by the name of Peter, Peter Brock, and he, he wrote this book that's called uh, the answer to how is yes. And what he proposes is that we ask questions of how do we manage things way too early? He says one of the first things we need to establish in our communication is, can we say yes to a few key elements? Number one, how passionate are you about really creating a unified force? And does everybody have that same level of passion about it? Contrary to popular belief, everybody who is on a job, on assignment, is not necessarily passionate about the project and the end goal and things of that sort. They may be just uh, there to get a job. They need to show. So everybody is not really passionate about it. So if they can be some some clarity about 
you know, how passionate are you about what it is that we're doing and what drives that passion is, is clarity about what success looks like, what is the reason that we're doing this, what's the purpose behind it. What I've found in, in, in working with different groups is that they're going through processes but don't really understand why they have to do it. Why do we need to do it this way and, and, and why did this happen? So there's some who feel, well, we don't need to explain all of that to everybody at every level. And when you have a lack of understanding about the purpose or the reason why people are doing things, sometimes they're less motivated. They have less passion about doing it if they're tied, if they're not tied into um, a clearly defined reason of why it's important to do certain things. So that's that's some of the first steps I see, having the conversation. And that might mean more than just uh, having a meeting that, that may last 45 minutes or an hour. It, it may it, it may take some time. So that, that's the other thing he talks about. Uh, Peter Brock, he talks about having passion, having a clearly defined passion, purpose or reason why you're doing something and being willing to put in the work that's involved in creating that that clarity and that unified force. We also talked about bringing together teams of stakeholders with different goals and getting everyone on the same page. Well, you know, I talk about the subject of respect and the, the pillars of respect and things of that sort. So it's about respect of self and respect of others. So in respecting other people who come from different disciplines and, and different programs and have different ideas, it's about accepting that there's possibilities that others may have strategies for getting things done that could create the same success without doing it the exact same way. So that has to do with how leadership approaches it. So there's some leaders, as, as, as you well know, who only want things done a certain way, even though there are other ways to do it, they only want things to, done a certain way. And that's fine if you're working with a small group or, and everybody started you know, pretty much at the same place. But when you're doing these acquisitions that you talked about and people have seen other systems work, it works well if you can at least allow time to consider are there different approaches to accomplishing the same goal. Again, this goes back to having it clearly defined, here is what our ultimate goal is. And, and, and this is how we would like to get to it. As the healthcare industry becomes more consumer focused, more and more providers are seeing the need for a competitive pricing strategy. For today's Fast Five, we're looking at objectives for a pricing strategy that responds to strategic market imperatives. Ensure the pricing structure is logical. Furnish patients with estimates before delivering care. Understand the organization's cost to deliver services. Ensure pricing is visible and understandable. Establish a proactive process for applying pricing strategy to maintain margin. For a more comprehensive look at this topic, read the article, How Healthcare Providers Can Conduct a Consumer-Focused Pricing Strategy by Kevin Sears and Robert Dickinson in the November issue of HFM Magazine. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly, and special thanks to Todd Nelson for contributing this week. 
Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. This is our last regular episode of 2019, but we'll be releasing a couple of special episodes over the next month. Happy holidays from our team to yours, and we can't wait to see you in 2020.